Welcome to the Come Follow Me podcast for teens and for parents of teens, a podcast to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum with thoughts, ideas, principles, stories, and questions all geared towards helping teenagers better follow Christ through their teenage years. Hey everybody and welcome to another edition of the Come Follow Me podcast for teens. I'm Josh Downs. I apologize this is getting out a little bit later than usual. We had a few things going on with the holidays and enjoying the 4th of July. hope everyone had a great holiday as well. But uh, just now getting this out to you and hopefully there's still plenty of time for you to uh, listen, to go through and, and utilize it in any of your Come Follow Me study that you'll be doing this week. This week we'll be taking a look at Acts chapters 1 through 5, Ye Shall Be Witnesses Unto Me. A part of me is a little bit sad that we are moving into the book of Acts. As much as I like the second half of the New Testament, it's just not the same as the first half. Of all the the books of Scripture that I've taught over the years, uh, it's always been the first half of the New Testament, specifically the life of Christ that has been easily my favorite. There is just a simplicity about studying the life of Christ and looking directly at his teachings, reading them for ourselves. It's just so powerful in really helping to motivate and inspire us to be better. Now, as we move into the phase where the Savior is no longer directly with his apostles, of course, he still is leading, guiding, and directing them through the Holy Ghost, through his Spirit. And that is a a very important and vital aspect for us to learn about because that's the situation that we're in. We do not have the, the luxury of having Christ personally with us each and every day, but we do certainly have the opportunity to have his Spirit with us each and every day. And so the idea is as we move forward from here that yes, we continue to look for anything and everything that is Christ-like in nature, but that we also look for how the Savior's apostles, how his disciples, how people in general just interacted and connected with Christ through his Spirit, through the Holy Ghost. And that's where we're going to start today with these chapters as it contains the beginnings and the outpouring of the Holy Ghost among his disciples and apostles, and the interactions that they begin to have with Christ through his Spirit. For me, growing up, a testimony, having a testimony was always a very big deal, and I recognized early on that in order for me to have that testimony, I needed to be able to feel the Spirit, that often people's testimonies related to those experiences that they had with the Holy Ghost and with the Spirit. And I wanted to have that knowledge for myself. I wanted to be able to teach and to testify of truth. And I remember thinking that I needed some kind of an incredible experience to share in order for me to be able to do that. And I wanted to start out with kind of a personal experience that just to kind of help you see that these big experiences with the Holy Ghost are more often the exception more than they are the rule. But yet they're in there to help us to recognize that the Holy Ghost does have power and can move in extraordinary ways. But most often it doesn't. When I was in the MTC, I remember falling back on that desire that I had to have some kind of an incredible experience to be able to testify to others of. That this is how I know that this is true. Because I had this experience in this moment. It was revealed to me kind of a thing. Others had shared similar things. I thought, well, that's... What I need to be able to do as well, especially as it relates to the Book of Mormon, as I was going to be going out and teaching and testifying of Christ through that. And so I remember praying multiple nights while I was in the MTC for that kind of experience. I had finished reading it. Heavenly Father, please tell me in a powerful way that this is true. And yet night after night, nothing (laughs) came. 
until finally I began to express some frustration as a part of that prayer. And then in a quiet moment, as I was listening and contemplating why I was not having this experience that I wanted to have, I remember having the thought and in some ways hearing the voice, you already know, you've always known. And I thought, you know what? I have. (laughs) My testimony did not come from just one single experience. Nothing like what the Prophet Joseph experienced in the Sacred Grove or what the Apostles are about to experience here in the day of Pentecost. My testimony came a little bit here and a little bit there, line upon line, precept upon precept, one experience upon another. And I think that for a lot of us, that is how our testimonies are built. A little here and a little there. Now, some of us will have... Pretty amazing experiences and great experiences. But again, I want you to understand and maybe begin to look at those being the exception more than they are the rule. That the most important thing we can do to gain a testimony is just to simply share the little bit that we have, whatever that is. President Boyd K. Packer once said, Oh, if I could teach you this one principle, a testimony is to be found in the bearing or the sharing of it. That when we give what we have, whatever it is that we have, The Lord gives us back more with an increase. Now, I want you to keep that in mind as you go through your study this week, especially as you read about some of the incredible experiences that the apostles have with the Holy Ghost. Now, to better set up our study for this week, let's first begin by looking at the the context in which this study takes place. The introduction to this week's study reads like this. Have you ever wondered what Peter might have been thinking and feeling when he, with the other apostles, looked steadfastly toward heaven as Jesus ascended to his Father? The church that was founded by the Son of God was now in Peter's care. The task of leading the effort to teach all nations now rested on him. But if he felt inadequate or afraid, we don't find any evidence of that in the book of Acts. What we do find are examples of fearless testimony and conversion miraculous healing, spiritual manifestations, and significant growth for the church. This was still the Savior's church, still led by him. In fact, the book of Acts of the Apostles could also be called the Acts of Jesus Christ through his apostles. Guided by an outpouring of the Spirit, Peter was no longer the unlearned fisherman Jesus found on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, nor was he the distraught man who only weeks earlier was weeping bitterly because he had denied that he ever knew Jesus of Nazareth. In the book of Acts, you will read powerful declarations about Jesus Christ and his gospel. You will also see how that gospel can change people, including you, into the valiant disciples God knows that they can be. I love that introduction. And as it points out, this is still Christ's church. He continues to lead and guide it and direct it, even though he is not physically there. As it records in verse 2 of chapter 1, Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. The foundation for Christ's church had been laid, and now it was time for the building to be built upon it through the teaching and testifying of Christ's apostles and the direction that they would receive through the Holy Ghost. Now, here's three key principles from this week's study that I believe can help you in getting the most out of your study. The first principle, we want to take a look at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Before the Lord ascends into heaven, he gives the opportunity for his disciples to ask him a few questions. And we learn of one of those questions in these verses, Acts 1, 6 through 8, that reads, 
When they were therefore come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. In other words, there are some things for you to know, and there are some things for you not to not know. And I think that's an important thing to clarify. I know that we all want answers. We want to know certain things. And there will be things in your life that you want to know, answers that you want to have. But sometimes it's not for us to know. And sometimes we need to learn to accept that. But he continues in verse 8, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all of Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. I think in a lot of ways he's telling them that yes, there will be answers that you want to have that you won't be given right away. And while you patiently wait for those answers to come, there is one thing for you to do. And that is to be a witness of me. I'm reminded of that phrase, I believe it's from the Spider-Man movies. It just simply says, with great power comes great responsibility. Although there are things that we're not meant to know yet, God still desires to bless you and I and to lead us by the hand and answer our prayers, to give us power to overcome trials and temptation, to reveal himself to us so that we might feel of his love and know that he's there. And in giving us all of this, there is one thing that he asks in return, and that is to bear testimony of who he is to the world. As a cross-reference, let me give you Abraham chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. These are some great verses to further clarify what our responsibility is in bearing that witness to the world. Abraham, at this point in time, was very young, and he was in need of help himself to be delivered from his father and the priests that were going to sacrifice him as a young person. In case you didn't know, Abraham was almost sacrificed by his own father, although his father was sacrificing him to a pagan god, which makes the whole ordeal that he went through in being asked to sacrifice his son Isaac so much more profound recognizing exactly what Isaac must have been thinking and feeling having been there himself but in that moment but in that moment where he himself was sacrificed of that experience and being delivered by the Lord in it he writes in verse 15 of Abraham 1 and as they lifted up their hands upon me that they might offer me and take away my life behold I lifted up my voice unto the Lord and the Lord hearkened and heard and filled me with the vision of the Almighty, and the angel of his presence stood by me, and immediately unloosed my bands. And his voice was unto me, Abraham, Abraham, behold, thou, my name is Jehovah, and I have heard thee, and have come down to deliver thee, and to take thee away from thy father's house, and from all thy kinsfolk, into a strange land which thou knowest not of. Behold, I will lead thee by my hand, and I will take thee to put upon thee my name, even the priesthood of thy father, and my power shall be over thee. And as it was with Noah, so shall it be with thee. But through thy ministry, my name shall be known in the earth forever, for I am thy God. Now the thing I love most about that exchange is that those promises are available to each and every one of us. God will hearken and hear you, and he'll fill you with the vision of himself and stand by you in your challenges and trials and unloose your bands and at times deliver you. That's what he does. And make no mistake, he definitely intends to take you away from the world that you know and lead you to a better one that some might refer to as a strange land. One that you might not even know existed. 
But his promise to you is the same as with Abraham, that I will lead thee by my hand, and I will take thee, and put my name upon thee, and power, my power, shall be over thee. I know that many of you listening are familiar with the Toy Story movies, right? Well, there's a part of those movies that I want to just draw your attention to. The toys knew that they had arrived when on their foot they had a special name written on it. Do you remember what that name was? If you said Andy, that would be correct. Andy was the name of their owner. And that name that and being written on the bottom of their, their foot, it was a reminder to them of who they belonged to, who it was that loved them, and that they were special. Well, I bring that up because God intends to write his name on you. He says so in these verses and so many others, and to do so for the same reasons, to remind you that you are his, and to remind others that you are his, so that they will know not to mess with you, because if they mess with you, they mess with him, because you belong to him. And he wants you to know that you are known and that you are loved. And he is willing to give you all of this for one thing in return. And that is when, as he said to Abraham, but through your ministry, my name shall be known in the earth. He needs our help to get his name out there to others. In other words, I want you to help others to get to know me. I want them to get to know me through you. To know that I love them, that I will hear and hearken to them and give them power and deliver them from their problems. That they're special to me as well and that their lives can change for the better if they will follow me and allow me to take them to a better land, a better place, to live a better life. And allow me to lead them by the hand and write my name upon them. That's what all this is about. That is what he is relying on each of you to do and to be for him to be witnesses unto him, both at Jerusalem, which would be like your home, in all of Judea, your community and friends, in Samaria, which might include even your enemies, and to the uttermost part of the earth, strangers and everyone that you meet. Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. And this is one of the reasons why serving a mission is so important. The blessings that God promises you for simply making his name known, are infinite and eternal. It's one of the things that I love most about the introduction here to the book of Acts is that we are going to watch experience after experience, moment after moment, word after word, deed after deed of the apostles taking the Savior's name now to the rest of the world. He has in effect written his name upon them and upon their hearts and they are his And they now are going out to the world to tell the world about him. That's what it means to be a witness of Christ at all times, in all things, and in all places, wherever we may be in. Now, some questions for you to to consider about this is maybe, how have you experienced God's power of deliverance in your life? Have you experienced him hearkening to and hearing your prayers? How have you experienced him helping you see things that you hadn't seen before? How have, him, how have you felt him standing by you? In what ways have you experienced him changing you, leading to a different land, leading you out of the world in a sense? What are some of the opportunities that you've had already to stand as a witness for him? In what ways have you borne testimony of him through your words and through your actions? 
And what does it mean to you to stand as a witness of God in all things, at all times, and at all places, whatever you may be in? Those are some great questions to spend some time contemplating or discussing among your family or friends. Now for the second principle, I want to focus on a phrase, and that phrase is pricked in their heart. Let me give you a little bit of the context behind that. We're going to be looking at chapter 2. And it involves the day of Pentecost, which was the day that the Holy Ghost descended upon the Savior's disciples in really tremendous power. Before the Savior left, he told them that Heavenly Father would send the Holy Ghost to them. And I'm sure they didn't quite understand what that meant at the time. There wasn't much need for the Holy Ghost to be with them while the Savior was with them. But now that he was gone, it would be his Spirit that would guide and direct them. His Spirit that they would need to learn to rely on. And it was poured out upon them in great measure on that particular day, the day of Pentecost. The ability to hear and recognize the voice of the Spirit is as critical for us today as it was for them back then. Maybe even more so today, especially with all the noise and the deception and the temptation that we are constantly surrounded by. In fact, I remember President Nelson saying recently that in the coming days it will not be possible to survive spiritually without the guiding, directing, comforting, and constant influence of the Holy Ghost. That is a pretty significant statement from one that we sustain as a prophet, seer, and revelator to have said. So how does it work? How can we learn to recognize the guiding, directing, comforting influence of the Holy Ghost, and most importantly, have it with us constantly? Well, there's a pattern here in the book of Acts chapter 2 that is important, I think, for us to recognize and to see And that's what I want to take a look at for principle number two today. As the apostles were finishing speaking and testifying of Christ, Peter says in verse 36 of chapter 2, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. They had just been taught some powerful truths about the Savior. And what happened next? Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, They were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were pricked in their heart. I want you to mark that. They felt something, something inside of them because of what they were taught. President Packer, in a wonderful talk about the Holy Ghost titled The Candle of the Lord, said that often the Holy Ghost is referred to in scriptures as a voice. But he said, the scriptures generally use the word voice, which does not exactly fit. These delicate, refined spiritual communications are not seen with our eyes, nor heard with our ears. And even though it is described as a voice, it is a voice that one feels more than one hears. And young people, this is an important concept to understand, especially as it relates to recognizing the Spirit and its workings in your life. We often overlook the workings of the Spirit by looking for or expecting too much. Remember me telling you a little bit about my experience with that at the beginning? If you were to describe the feeling of a prick, how would you describe it? Maybe subtle, a little sharp, yet temporary and quick? Something just strong enough to get your attention. More than just a simple thought. A thought that included a feeling. Now think about the last time that you felt that prick of the heart. Maybe it came when you read a particular verse of scripture. 
or listened to a talk at a youth conference or during general conference, or you saw a video of something, or heard a beautiful song, or listened to a friend bear their testimony, or maybe even when you shared your own, there would have been a moment where you just felt something, something that pressed itself just gently enough on your feelings to cause you to notice it and to recognize that whatever you just heard or seen or experienced was good. That's the Holy Ghost. That's most often how He works. Now look at what those who felt that prick in their heart, that pressing upon their feelings, look at what they did next. It's kind of the natural order of events when one feels the Spirit. In verse 37, it's recorded that they turned to the apostles and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? See, the Holy Ghost will always lead you and I to act. It instills within us a desire to be better, a desire to follow Christ more, a desire to do whatever it takes to feel that feeling again. What was the answer to that? Well, Peter told them in verse 38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You and I as baptized members of the church have received that gift. The Holy Ghost is with us always and will not withdraw from us unless we withdraw ourselves from Him through our choices. But as soon as we begin to repent, we begin to take steps back to Him and to having His influence constantly in our lives. Now I want you to understand that learning to recognize the Spirit, to have the Spirit with us constantly, all of these things are a quest and the quest of a lifetime. And so don't feel bad or beat yourself up if you don't feel like you're there yet or you have that kind of understanding. This is something that I would encourage you to seek for, though, earnestly and as often as you can. Be in those places where the Spirit is and where it can speak to you. Look for those opportunities as often as you can so that you can begin to learn more and more how the Spirit works in your life and recognize it in your life. In many ways, it's really no different than utilizing the radio that's in your car, in your home. Every radio has a certain frequency that in order to get to that particular station, you need to tune into that frequency to be able to have a clear signal coming through. I'm sure all of us know and have experienced times where the signal was not very clear on something, whether it was the radio or TV or whatever we were looking at or or listening to. Now, how frustrating that could be because we're missing vital pieces of information. Well, the same is true with the Spirit. It takes a a certain amount of effort and even skill and practice and experience to be able to tune into that frequency where the Spirit can speak to us as clearly as possible. And we're learning constantly how to do that. On your radio in your car, you have a, a seek button. That button is designed to take you from one station to the next until you find the one that you want. Sometimes you have to cut through, again, a lot of noise to find it. And it's the same with the Spirit. The Spirit speaks to us when it's quiet and when it's calm, and it's up to us to seek it and to find it. Now I want you to think about this. How often do you have quiet and calm moments throughout your day? (laughs) Moments that are not filled up with music or noise or stress. This is one of the reasons I believe why reading our scriptures is so important. It really might be the only time where we have a little quietness and open our minds towards heaven. The only time that we really have to tune in 
times like when we say our prayers or attend the temple or go to church, all of these things are simply an attempt to tune into the right frequency so that we could be led correctly by the right voice in our lives. And so again, take the opportunity, every opportunity to hear that voice so that you can follow that voice. And the next time you do and you feel that prick in your heart, try to ask Heavenly Father what He wants you to do about it. He'll tell you. And it might be to change a bad habit or to reach out to a friend or a person, to express your love to others, or maybe He just wants you to recognize His love for you. In war, the very first thing that an opposing side tries to do is to destroy communication. And make no mistake about it, we are at war. There are very, very real forces of good and evil that are in play in this world and in our lives. And I know that the first thing that Satan would love to do is to destroy your ability to communicate with God, to receive counsel and orders and support and direction and anything and everything that will help you to win this war. When those communications become disrupted, it makes it very hard to fight effectively. And that is what you and I face each and every day. There's a reason in the scriptures that Heavenly Father repeats often the phrase, Be still and know that I am God. Because these men that the apostles were speaking to in chapter 2 were in a place and a state of mind that was open to heavenly communication, they received it, and their lives are about to change forever. Now, a couple of key questions to consider about this particular principle as it relates to you would be, first of all, can you think of a time recently where you felt that prick of conscience or that prick of, of your heart? And how did it feel? What did it tell you to do? And what places have you been where you've been able to feel the Spirit best? Another question might be, what activities have invited the Spirit most in your life? What can you do to increase those things in your life? How can you give time to feel the Spirit each and every day? Have you been blessed from following the directions of the Spirit in your life? From this particular chapter in reading, what role do apostles and prophets apparently play in helping us to hear, recognize, and feel and act on the Spirit? And maybe the last question from all this is, what will you do better to have the Spirit in your life? Now for the last principle, just really a quick one for you as we end there's a phrase in chapter 5 of Acts that I want to spend just a little bit of time on. In chapter 5, Peter and John have been arrested for preaching and are told to stop. But while they're in prison, an angel comes in the middle of the night and opens the door to the prison and lets them out. Which, I just love that story. I mean, God is so amazing. He can solve any problem in any way that He wants to that we happen to get in. If it's His will and it's what's best for us. And in this case, the Lord didn't want Peter and John in a prison, so he just simply opened the doors and let them out. <laughs> well, the next day, the men that had arrested them came to the prison to check on them. They found the doors locked. They found the guards were all still there. But the men were gone. They just were not in their prison cell anymore. They were told by others that Peter and John were back, preaching in the town square again. <laughs> Well, these men then approached them, and when they found them, they said, Hey, didn't we tell you to stop preaching? Never mind, how in the world did you get out of a locked prison with armed guards? 
But they told him once again to stop. Didn't we, in verse 28, it records, didn't we straightly command you that ye should not teach in his name? I love verse 29, Peter's response. Then Peter and the other apostles answered, we ought to obey God rather than men. Will you please mark that statement? Every once in a while, there's just a power statement that I just I love. And this is one of those that I would love for you to mark and write in your heart and in your mind. We ought to obey God rather than men. I want to draw your mind back to an experience that Joseph Smith had that was very similar in many ways, where the Lord taught him a profound truth, very similar to this idea that it's better to obey man than God, that we ought to obey God rather than men. In Doctrine and Covenants section 3, Joseph was being pressured, if you remember, to give Martin Harris the 116 pages of manuscripts they had just finished translating of the Book of Mormon. And I'm sure it was hard for Joseph to say no. Martin was very persistent, and he was one of the few that really believed in him. He was a good friend. And most importantly, he was financing Joseph's ability to translate. Joseph didn't have the luxury of just taking time off work to translate uh, and to provide for his family on the side. He needed help, and Martin was one of those benefactors that was paying his expenses and helping him to provide for his, himself and his family while he did the work of translation. And so here's Martin asking him over and over for those pages to get some of the people that he knew in his life off of his back and to help get some support for himself. Well, as you know the story, the answer from the Lord came back, no. Even the second time it came back as no. Yet Joseph continued to be persistent because Martin was being persistent and Joseph didn't want to lose his friend or I'm sure the financing available to him. And so the third time the Lord said, yes but gave him some strict guidelines with which to follow. Well, as you know the story, the 116 pages were lost. There was a plan put in place to destroy Joseph, to destroy the work, a plan laid by the adversary. And for a time, Joseph thought that everything had been lost. But again, as a testament to God's amazingness, to his foreknowledge, everything that he really is, The Lord had foreseen this particular situation playing out long before it ever had. In fact, he fixed Joseph's mistake roughly 2,000 years prior to him ever making it (laughs) as he inspired both Nephi and then Mormon and others to write in such a way that it could become the first chapter of the Book of Mormon instead of what had been translated from the Book of Lehi. From that experience, the Lord teaches Joseph two great principles. First of all, in verse 7 of section 3, the Lord tells him, For behold, you should not have feared man more than God. Joseph hadn't quite learned the truth behind the statement that Peter and John had given, that it is better to obey God than man. He was still learning, he was still young in the process. But that phrase, For behold, you should not have feared man more than God, was profound. And why? Because in verse 8, the Lord then continues, You should have been faithful, and he would have extended his arm and supported you against the fiery darts of the adversary, and he would have been with you in every time of trouble. In other words, Joseph, I know you are afraid of Martin leaving, of Martin taking his money and not being able to finance you, of losing a friend, all those things. But it wouldn't have mattered if Martin left. And it wouldn't have mattered if he had taken his money with him. I would have provided another. 
I have watched over the years, you guys, as young people, as early as your ages, have had experiences with this as well. Students that over the years have had to choose between certain scholarships and serving missions and worrying and fearing that if I go on a mission, I might lose that scholarship. I might lose that opportunity. I've watched as a particular boyfriend or girlfriend struggle with chastity, thinking that if I don't give myself in that particular way, I'm going to lose that boyfriend. I'm going to lose that girlfriend. I have had conversations with other students who have struggled over getting good grades versus cheating, that I have to have these good grades in order to be able to get in the college that I want. And the only way I'm for sure going to do that is if I cheat on this particular test or this particular situation. I've watched as other students I've had struggled with maintaining all their friends versus the peer pressure that they at times had felt or been put under. That if I don't do this, even if I know that it's not right or if I feel that it's wrong, that I'm going to lose these friends and the fear that's associated with that. Nobody wants to lose scholarships or not be able to go to the school that they want or lose a boyfriend or girlfriend or friends because of peer pressure. All of those concerns are very normal to have, but I want you to think about how this situation that Joseph and the 116 pages and even Peter and John and preaching while they could have been thrown into prison, how do these situations apply to you? How can you see yourself and any of the situations you might be in, in them? Can you tell from these verses what God would tell you about those situations that you might find yourself in? And can you come to a place where you can learn to say for yourself that we ought to obey God rather than men? Back when I was teaching, I would give all my students a little kind of a handout, a little card that said 116 on it, representative of the 116 pages. Because I knew that each of them at some point in their lives would have to choose between following God and following man. They'd have to choose which one they feared more. And maybe the truth is that question is best answered by which one they love more. But I want you to understand that whatever your situation, that no matter what it is you're afraid to lose, that God can send an angel to open the prison doors at night to get you out. He can send another in place of whomever leaves. He can and will provide all the financial help you need. He can do all things for you. So you might lose that scholarship for serving a mission. He will provide something else, something better for you. You might lose a boyfriend or girlfriend because you want to be true to the law of chastity and to what you know and feel is right. Guess what? He will send another. You're afraid of losing friends due to peer pressure and doing things that you know that you shouldn't? Again, God's promise to you is that you should not fear man more than God and that he will be faithful and extend his arm of mercy to support you against everything, all the fiery darts of the adversary. He'll be with you in every time of trouble. He will send the right people to you in the right way and the right time. He will help you find other friends. He will help you get in the school that you need to. He will help you get the scholarships or whatever is best for you in your situation. That's a part of the experience we're having here on earth is learning to trust God over ourselves and certainly over others. He is the one that we need to learn to follow in every situation, regardless of what it is, and to learn to trust the phrase, He will support you in every time of trouble. Now, it doesn't mean you won't go through hard things, or that you won't be teased or made fun of or ridiculed for what you believe. Over the course of my life, I've been teased plenty for not drinking or for just my beliefs in general as a Mormon. But I want you to look at how Peter and the other apostles viewed these kinds of things. Look at verse 41. Regardless of the shame that came from trusting in God and staying true to Him, 
it's recorded that they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were accounted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They departed the school or that party or from those other students or those of their own friends or sometimes from those in their family or within their community, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I wish I could stand here and tell you that following God would always be easy, but I can't. There will be times where you'll be pointed out, that you'll be picked on, maybe ridiculed, but please know whenever that happens that you are in good company. We ought to obey God rather than man. A couple of key questions to end with today. How have you at times feared man more than God? How have you at times worried more about what others did or what others thought more than what God could do or what he thinks? Why should we not fear man more than God? In what ways have you experienced putting God first over things that were hard to put second? And how have you been blessed for doing it? How have you felt God support you in times of trouble because you chose Him over something or someone else? What are some of the things that you might be asked to choose God over in your life in the years ahead that might be difficult to do? Which friends do you have that would support you in putting God first? Which friends do you have that might put pressure on you to put Him second? How can you be strong when facing the peer pressure to do things that you know are wrong? How can you look at suffering shame for his name in the way that Peter and the other apostles did and rejoice in it? Can you think of a time that you suffered shame for his name? A time where maybe you were made fun of or teased or even wrongly accused all for simply trying to follow Christ. Now hopefully these principles have been helpful for you today. Again, remember that we are, as his disciples, meant to stand as his witnesses at all times and in all things and in all places, wherever we may be in. That is what he asks of us to do. And the blessings that he promises in return are immeasurable. And the best way that we can do that is simply by being like him, by living like him, by following him. Remember, that person is greatest and most blessed and joyful, whose life most closely approaches the pattern of the Christ. This has nothing to do with earthly wealth, power, or prestige. The only true test of greatness, blessedness, joyfulness, is how close a life can come to being like the Master Jesus Christ. He is the right way, the full truth, and the abundant life. And he invites us all to come follow me. As always, let's follow him better this week and become better as we follow him. Until next week, everyone, I'm Josh Downs, and you've been listening to Come Follow Me for Teens.